0: Hey everyone, it's Miss Felicia J here and welcome to Love, Life, and a Beautiful Glass of Red Wine. This is the chapter-by-chapter episode. I was inspired to start this podcast because of my sons. I trust that reading these books will inspire them to continue to broaden their minds and have amazing conversations as a result. I trust that all of you will also be inspired by these books, learn more about our world and its residents, have profound conversations, broaden your mind, and continue to foster your love of reading. If you have a suggestion, email me at chapterbychapter256 at gmail.com and I'll put it on the reading list. This episode, we're reading James Baldwin and we're on page 27 of The Fire Next Time. But before we start, let's have a drink. All right, page 27 of The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. As I look back, everything I did seems curiously deliberate, though it certainly did not seem deliberate then. For example, I did not join the church of which my father was a member and which he preached. My best friend in school who attended a different church had already surrendered his life to the Lord, and he was very anxious about my soul's salvation. I wasn't but any human attention was better than none. One Saturday Saturday afternoon, he took me to his church. There were no services that day, and the church was empty except for some women cleaning and some other women praying. My friend took me into the back room to meet his pastor, a woman. There she sat in her robe, smiling, an extremely proud and handsome woman, with Africa, Europe, and the America of the Americans' Indian blend sorry, and the America of the American Indian blended in her face. She was perhaps 45 or 50 at this time and in our world she was a very celebrated woman. My friend was about to introduce me when she looked at me and smiled and said, whose little boy are you? Now this, unbelievably, was precisely the phrase used by pimps and racketeers on the avenue when they suggested, both humorously and intensely, that I hang out with them. Perhaps part of the terror they had caused me to feel came from the fact that I unquestionably wanted to be somebody's little boy. I was so frightened and at the mercy of so many conundrums that inevitably that summer someone would have taken me over. One doesn't in Harlem. Long remained standing on my auction on the auction on any auction block rather. It was my good luck perhaps that I found myself in the church racket instead of some other, and surrendered to a spiritual seduction long before. I came to any carnal knowledge. For when the pastor asked me with that marvelous smile, whose little boy are you? My heart replied at once, why yours? The summer wore on and things got worse. I became more guilty and more frightened and kept all this bottled up inside of me. And naturally, inescapably, one night when this woman had finished preaching, everything came roaring, screaming, crying out, and I fell to the ground before the altar. It was the strangest sensation I have ever had in my life, up until that time or since. I had not known that it was going to happen, or that it could happen. One moment I was on my feet, singing and clapping, and at the same time working out in my head the plot of a play I was working on then. The next moment, with no transition, no sensation of falling, I was on my back with the lights beating down into my face and all the vertical saints above me. I did not know what I was doing down so low or how I had gotten there, and the anguish that filled me cannot be described. It moved in me like one of those floods that devastate countries, tearing everything down, tearing children from their parents and lovers from each other and making everything an unrecognizable waste. All I remember is the pain, the unspeakable pain. It was as though I were yelling up to heaven and heaven would not hear me. And if heaven would not hear me, if love could not descend from heaven to wash me, to make me clean, then utter disaster was my portion. Yes, it does indeed mean something, something unspeakable, to be born in a white country, an anglo teutonic anti-sexual country, black, You very soon, without knowing it, give up all hope of Communion. Black people, mainly, look down or look up, but do not look at each other. Not at you. And white people, mainly, look away. And the universe is simply a sounding drum. There is no way, no way whatever. So it seemed then, and has sometimes seen since, to get through a life to love your wife and children, or your friends, or your mother and father, or to be loved. The universe which is not merely stars and the moon and the planets flowers grass and trees but other people has evolved no terms for your existence has made no room for you and if love will not swing wide the gates no other power will or can and if one despairs as who has not of human love god's love alone is left but god and I felt this even then, so long ago on that tremendous floor, unwillingly was white. And if his love was so great, and if his and if he loved all his children, why were we, the blacks, cast down so far? Why, in spite of all I have said, thereafter I found no answer on the floor, not that answer anyway, and I was on the floor all night, over me to bring me through, the saints sang and rejoiced and prayed, and in the morning when they raised me, they told me that I was saved. Well, indeed I was, in a way, for I was utterly drained and exhausted and released for the first time from all my guilty torment. I was aware then only of my relief. For many years I could not ask myself why human relief had to be achieved in such a fashion at once so pagan and so desperate, in a fashion at once so unspeakably old and so unutterably new. And by the time I was able to ask myself this question, I was also able to see that the principles governing the rights and customs of the church in which I grew up did not differ from the principles governing the rights and customs of other churches, white. The principles were blindness, loneliness, and terror, the first principle necessarily and actively cultivated in order to deny the two others. I would love to believe that the principles were faith, hope, and charity, but this is clearly not so for most Christians or for what we call the Christian world. I was saved, but at the same time, out of a deep adolescent cunning, I do not pretend to understand. I realized immediately that I could not remain in the church merely as another worshiper. I would have to give myself something to do in order not to be bored and find myself among all the wretched unsaved of the avenue. And I don't doubt that I also intended to best my father on his own ground. Anyway, very shortly after I joined the church, I became a preacher, a young minister, and I remained in the pulpit for more than three years. My youth quickly made me much bigger, made me a much bigger drawing card than my father. I pushed this advantage ruthlessly, for it was the most effective means I had found of breaking his hold of me. That was the most frightening time of my life, and quite the most dishonest and the resulting hysteria lent great passion to my sermons, for a while. I relished the attention and the relative immunity from punishment that my new status gave me, and I relished above all the sudden right to privacy. It had to be recognized, after all, that I was still a schoolboy with my schoolwork to do, and I was also expected to prepare at least one sermon a week. During what we may call my heyday, I preached much more often than that. This meant that there were hours and even even whole days where I couldn't be interrupted, not even by my father. I had immobilized him. It took rather more time for me to realize that I had also immobilized myself, and and had escaped from nothing whatsoever. The church was very exciting. It took a long time for me to disengage myself from this excitement, and on the blindest, most visceral level. I never really have, and never will. There is no music like that music, no drama like that drama, no drama like the drama of the saints rejoicing, the sinners moaning, the tambourines racing and all those voices come to, coming together and crying, Holy unto the Lord. There is still for me no pathos quite like the pathos of those multicolored, worn, somehow triumphant and transfigured faces, speaking from the depths of a visible, tangible, continuing despair of the goodness of the Lord. I have never seen anything to equal the fire and excitement that sometimes without warning fill a church, causing the as lead belly and so many others have testified to rock. Nothing has happened to me since... Nothing that has happened to me since equals the power and the glory that I sometimes feel when, in the middle of a sermon, I knew that I was somehow, by some miracle, really carrying, as they said, the word, when the church and I were one. Their pain and their joy were mine, and mine were theirs, and they surrendered their pain and joy to me. I surrendered mine to them in their cries of Amen and Hallelujah and less your Lord, and praise his name, and preach it, brother, sustained and whipped on my solos until we all became equal, wringing wet, singing and dancing in anguish, and rejoicing at the foot of the altar. It was for a long time in spite of, or not inconceivably because of, the shabbiness of my motives, my only sustenance, my meat and drink. I rushed home from school, to church, to the altar, to be alone there, to commune with Jesus, my dearest friend, who would never fail me, who knew all the secrets of my heart. Perhaps he did, but I didn't. And the bargain we struck, actually down there at the foot of the cross, was that he would never let me find out. He failed his bargain. He was a much better man than I took him for. It happened, as things do, imperceptibly in many ways at once. I I dated the f- slow crumbling of my faith, the pulverization of my fortress, from the time about a year after i had begun to preach when I'd begun to read again, I justified this desire by the fact that I was still in school, and I began fatally with Dzevsky. By this time I was in a high school that was predominantly Jewish. This meant that I was surrounded by people who were, by definition, beyond any hope of salvation, who laughed at the tracts and leaflets I brought to school, and who pointed out that the Gospels had been written long after the death of Christ. This might not have been so distressing if I had not for- if it had not forced me to read the tracts and leaflets myself. For they were, indeed, unless one believed their message already, impossible to believe. I remember feeling dimly that there was a kind of blackmail in it. People I felt ought to love the Lord because they loved Him, and not because they're afraid of going to hell. I was forced forced reluctantly to realize that the Bible itself had been written by men, and translated by men out of languages I could not read, and I was already, without quite admitting it to myself, terribly involved with the effort of putting words on paper. Of course I had the rebuttal ready. These men had all been operating under divine inspiration. Had they? All of them? And I also knew by now, alas, far more about the divine inspiration that I dared admit, for I knew how I worked myself up into my own visions, and how frequently, indeed, incessantly, the visions God granted me differed from the visions he granted to my father. I did not understand the dreams I had at night, but I knew that they were not holy. For that matter, I knew that my waking hours were far from holy. I spent most of my time in a state of of repentance for things I had vividly desired to do, but had not done. The whole fact that I was dealing with Jews brought the whole question of color, which I had been desperately avoiding, into the terrified center of my mind. I realized that the Bible had been written by white men. I knew that, according to many Christians, I was a descendant of Ham, who had been cursed, and that I was therefore predestined to be a slave. This had nothing to do with anything I was or contained or could become. My fate had been sealed forever from the beginning of time. And it seemed indeed, when one looked out over Christendom, that this was what Christendom effectively believed. It was certainly the way it behaved. I remembered the Italian priests and bishops blessing Italian boys who were on their way to Ethiopia. Again, the Jewish boys in high school were. were troubling because I could find no point of connection between them and the Jewish pawnbrokers and landlords and grocery store owners in Harlem. I knew that these people were Jews, God knows I was told it often enough, but I thought of them only as white. Jews as such until I got to high school were all incarcerated in the Old Testament and their names were Abraham, Moses, Daniel, Ezekiel and Job and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. It was bewildering to find them so many miles and centuries out of Egypt and so far from the fiery furnace. My best friend in high school was a Jew. He came to our house once, and afterward my father asked, as he asked about everyone, Is he a Christian? By which he meant, Is he saved? I really do not know whether my answer came out of innocence or venom, but I said coldly, No, he's Jewish. My father slap, slammed me across the face with his great palm, And in that moment, everything flooded back, all the hatred and all the fear, and the depth of a merciless resolve to kill my father rather than allow my father to kill me. And I knew that all those sermons and tears and all that repentance and rejoicing had changed nothing. I wondered if I was expected to be glad that a friend of mine or anyone else or anyone was to be tormented forever in hell and I also thought suddenly of the Jews in another Christian nation, Germany. They were not so far from the fiery furnace at all, after all, and my best friend might have been one of them. I told my father he's a better Christian than you are, and walked out of the house. The battle between us was in the open, but that was all right. It was almost a relief. A more deadly struggle had begun. Being in the pulpit was like being in the theater. I was behind the scenes and knew how the illusion worked. I knew the other ministers and knew the quality of their lives. And I don't mean to suggest by this the Elmer Gantry sort of hypocrisy concerning sexuality. It was a deeper, deadlier, and more subtle hypocrisy than that. And a little honest sexuality, or a lot would have been bet, been like the water in an extremely bitter desert. I knew how to work on a congregation until the last dime was surrendered. It was not very hard to do, and I knew where the money was. For the Lord's work went. I knew, though I did not wish to know it, that I had no respect for the people with whom I worked. I could not have said it to them, sorry, I could not have said it then, but I also knew that if I continued, I would soon have no respect for myself. And the fact that I was the young Brother Baldwin increased my value with those same pimps and racketeers who had helped to stampede me into the church in the first place. They still saw the little boy that they intended to take over. They were waiting for me to come to my senses and realize that I was in a very lucrative business. They knew that I did not yet realize this, and also that I had not yet begun, begun to suspect where my own needs, coming up, they were very patient, could drive me. They themselves did not did know the score, and they knew that the odds were in their favor, and really I knew it too. I was even lonelier and more vulnerable than I had been before, and the blood of the lamb had not cleansed me in any way whatever. I was just as black as I had been the day before day I was born. Therefore, when I faced the congregation, it began to take all the strength I had not to stammer, not to curse, not to tell them to throw away their Bibles and get off their knees and go home and organize, for example, a rent strike. When I watched all the children, their copper-brown and beige faces staring up at me as I taught Sunday school, I felt that I was committing a crime and talking about the gentle Jesus, and telling them to reconcile themselves to their misery on earth in order to gain the crown of eternal life. Were only negroes to gain this crown? Was heaven then to be merely another ghetto? Perhaps I might have been able to reconcile myself, even to this if I had been able to believe that there was any loving-kindness to be found in the haven I represented. But I had been in the pulpit too long, and I had seen too many monstrous things. I don't refer merely to the glaring fact that the minister eventually acquires houses and Cadillacs while the faithful continue to scrub floors and drop dimes and quarters and dollars into the plate. I really mean that there was no love in the church. It was a mask for hatred and self-hatred and despair. The transfiguring power of the Holy Ghost ended when the service ended and salvation stopped at the church door. When we were told to love everybody, I thought that meant everybody. But no, it applied only to those who believed as we did, and it did not apply to white people at all. I was told by a minister, for example, that I should never, on any public conveyance, under any circumstances, rise and give my seat to a white woman. White men never rose to for Negro women. Well, that was true enough. In the main, I saw his point. But what was the point, the purpose of my salvation, if it did not permit me To behave with love towards others, no matter how they behave towards me. Sorry about that. What others did, sorry about that, everyone, what others did with their responsibility for which they would answer when the judgment trumpet sounded. But what I did was my responsibility, and I would have to answer too, unless, of course, there was also in heaven a a special dispensation for benighted black for the benighted black who is not to be judged in the same way as other human beings or angels. It probably occurred to me around this time that the vision people hold of the world to come to come is but a reflection with predictable wishful distortions of the world in which they live. And this did not apply only to negroes who are no more simple or spontaneous or Christian than anybody else, who were more who are merely more oppressed. In the same way that we, for white people, were the descendants of Ham and were cursed forever, white people, for us, the descendants of Cain, were for us the descendants of Cain. And the passion with which we loved the Lord was a measure of how deeply we feared and distrusted and in the end hated almost all strangers, always and avoided and despised ourselves. But I cannot leave it at that. There is more to it than that. In spite of everything, there was in the in the life I fled a zest and a joy and a capacity for facing and surviving disaster that are very moving and very rare. Perhaps we were all of us, pimps, whores, racketeers, church members, and children, bound together by the nature of our of our oppression, the specific and peculiar complex of risks we had to run. If so, within these limits, we sometimes achieved with each other a freedom that was close to love. I remember, anyway, church suppers and outings, and later after I left the church, rent and waistline parties where rage and sorrow sat in the darkness and did not stir, and we ate and drank and talked and laughed and danced and forgot all about the man. We had the liquor, the chicken, the music, and each other, and had no need to pretend to be what we were not. This is the freedom that one hears in some gospel songs, for example, and in jazz, in all jazz, and especially in the blues, there is something tart and ironic, authoritative and double-edged. White Americans seem to feel that happy songs are happy and sad songs are sad, and that, God help us, is exactly the, the way most white Americans sing them, sounding in both cases so helplessly, defensively, fortuitous that one dare not speculate on the temperature of the deep freeze from which their brave and sexless, sexless little voices. Sorry, the deep fridge from which issue their brave and sexless little voices. Only people who have been down the line, as the song puts it, know what this music is about. I think it was Big Bill Brusne who used to sing "I Feel so Good," a really joyful song about a man who is on his way to the railway station, railroad station, rather, to meet his girlfriend, his girl. She's coming home. It is the singer's incredibly moving exuberance that makes one realize how late in the time must have been while she was gone. There is no guarantee that she will stay this time either, as the singer clearly knows, and in fact she has not yet actually arrived. Tonight or tomorrow, within the next few minutes, he might very well be seeing Lonesome in my bedroom, or insisting, ain't we, ain't we, going to make it all right? Well, if it don't today, well, we'll make it tomorrow night. White Americans do not understand the depths out of which such an irony, ironic tenacity comes. But they suspect that the force is sensual, and they are terrified of sensuality, and do not any longer understand it. The word sensual is not intended to bring to mind quivering dusky maidens or parapic black studs. I am referring to something much simpler and much less fanciful. To be sensual, I think, is to respect and rejoice in the force of life itself, and to be present in all that one does from the effort of loving to the breaking of bread. It will be a great day for America, incidentally, when we begin to break bread again, instead of the blasphemous and tasteless foam rumber that we have substituted for it. And am I not being frivolous now either? Something very sinister happens to the people of a country when they begin to distrust their own reactions as deeply as they do here and become as joyless as they have become. It is this individual uncertainty on the part of white American men and women, this inability to renew themselves at the fountain of their own lives, that makes the discussion, let alone eludication of any conundrum, that is, any reality, so supremely difficult. The person who distrusts himself has no touchstone for reality, for this touchstone can only be oneself. Such a person interposes between himself and reality nothing less than a labyrinth of attitudes. And these attitudes, furthermore, though the person is actually, is usually unaware of it, is unaware of so much, are historical and public attitudes. They do not relate to the present any more than they relate to the person. Therefore, whatever white people do not know about Negro reveals precisely and inexorably what they do not know about themselves. White Christians have also forgotten several elementary historical details. They have forgotten that the religion that is now identified with their virtue and their power, God is on our side, says Virward, came out of a rocky piece of ground in what is known as the, what is now known as the Middle East, before color was invented, and that in order for the Christian church to be established, Christ had to be put to death by Rome and that the real architect of the Christian church was not the disreputable sun-baked Hebrew who gave it his name, but the mercilessly fanatical and self-righteous St. Paul. The energy that was buried with the rise of Christian nations must come back into the world. Nothing can prevent it. Many of us, I think, both long to see this happen and are terrified of it, for though this transformation contains the hope of liberation, it also imposes a necessity for great change. But in order to deal with the untapped and dormant force of the previously subjugated in order to survive as a human, moving moral weight in the world, America and all the Western nations will be forced to re-examine themselves and release themselves from the many things that are now taken to be sacred and to discard nearly all the assumptions that have been used to justify their lives and their anguish and their crimes for so long. The white man's heaven, sings a black Muslim minister, is the black man's hell. One may object, possibly, that this puts the matter somewhat too simply. But the song is true, and it has been true for as long as white men have ruled the world. The Africans put it another way: when the white man came to Africa, the white man had the Bible, and the African African had the land. But now it is the white man who is being reluctantly and bloodily separated. Sorry. But now it is the white man who is being reluctantly and bloodily separated from the land, and the African is still attempting to digest or vomit up the bible the struggle therefore now begins in the world that now begins in the world is extremely complex involving the historical role of christians in the realm of power that is politics and in the realm of morals in the realm of power christianity has operated with an unmitigated arrogance and cruelty necessarily since a religion ordinarily imposes on those who have discovered the true faith the spiritual duty of liberating the infidels. This particular true faith, moreover, is more deeply concerned about the soul than it is about the body, to which the fact the flesh and the corpses of countless infidels bears witness. It goes without saying, then, that whoever questions the authority of true faith also contests the right of the nations that hold this face to rule over him, contest, in short, their title to his land, The spreading of the gospel, regardless of the motives or the integrity, or the heroism of some of the missionaries, was an absolutely indispensable justification for the planting of the flag. Priests and nuns and schoolteachers helped to protect and sanctify the power that was so ruthlessly being used by people who were indeed seeking a city, but not one in the heavens, and one to be made very definitely by captive hands." The Christian church itself, again, as distinguished from some of its ministers, sanctified and rejoiced in the conquest of the flag, and encouraged, if it did, not formulate the belief that conquest, with the resulting relative well-being of the western populations, was proof of the favor of God. God had come a long way from the desert, but then so had Allah, though in a very different direction. God going north and rising on the wings of power had become white and a law out of power and on the dark side of heaven had become, for all practical purposes anyway, black. Thus, in the realm of morals, the role of Christianity has been, at best, ambivalent, even leaving out of the account the remarkable arrogance that assumed the ways and morals of others were inferior to those of Christians, and that they, therefore, had every right and could use any means to change them. The collision between cultures and the schizophrenia in the mind of Christendom had rendered the domain of morals as chartless as the sea once was, and as treacherous as the sea still is. It is not too much to say that whoever wishes to become a truly moral human being, and let us not ask whether or not this is possible, I think we must believe that it is possible, must first divorce himself from all the prohibitions, crimes, and hypocrisies of the Christian Church. If the concept of God has any validity or any use, It can only be to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God cannot do this, then it is time we got rid of him. And that is all for today, everyone. I trust that you enjoyed reading these pages with me. We're stopping on page 47, but reading these pages of James Baldwin, The Fire, next time with me. I trust that it has broadened your mind, inspired your thoughts or a conversation, changed your world or entertained you, Whatever it's done, I've trusted it served you. And I think that James Baldwin is very good at all of those things. So I'd love to hear in the comments on Instagram at Miss Felicia J, or a chapter by chapter. Leave some comments on Instagram about what this book means to you and what these pages meant to you. Because I think this is amazing. Also leave me comments here. And remember everyone that your flame, your fire will always burn. Lighting someone else's fire will never diminish yours. It will, only create, inc- sorry, it will only create a larger fire. Join me also at Love Life and a Beautiful Glass of Red Wine, my other podcast. Enjoy that one as well. I've really enjoyed reading these pages with you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Tune in next episode for more. Have a great day and a great week. Take care of yourself and each other. This is Miss Felicia J. Until next time, everyone, be well.